This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. There are two Old Testament readings this morning, Psalm 145 and then Job 19. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. To verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Job chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is the word of the Lord. The third reading is taken from the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 and 13 through 17. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, 
comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel portion for today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20, verses 27 through to 38. And we will honor an ancient Christian tradition where we will stand as we hear the good news what God is doing through Jesus the Messiah. We read our Gospels in the center of the community, something we inherit from the synagogue, reminding us that the word of God is to be in the center of our lives and our families. The good news according to Luke. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take up his wife and raise up offsprings for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and for all live to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now I know that uh, you are told to turn your cell phones off but uh, mine is for your protection. So when I get to 66 minutes, I'll stop, okay? (laughs) Excellent. Brothers and sisters, today is Remembrance Sunday. What is Remembrance Sunday? I hear you ask. It's a very good question. There's a tradition in uh, Church of England and in most of the British Empire that in the second Sunday in November, usually it falls before the 11th of November, we remember, and what do we remember? World War I, the war to end all wars, which unfortunately did not. And, uh, and so we will do that as part of our tradition today during time of intercessions. We will um, say a poem and uh, pray prayers for remembrance of our fallen ones and do our best to make sure this does not happen again. But the, the interesting thing for us, or for me, is that what is the most common commandment in the Bible? What does God ask us to do the most in the Bible? Remember. God actually asks us to remember more times than anything else. Um, 
why does he do that? Why does he ask us to remember? Because we are horribly forgetful. We are constantly distracted. We are distracted by the world. We're distracted by our cell phones. We're distracted by our ministries. We're distracted by everything. And we are constantly have forgotten some of the things that God has done. Even God remembers. So memory is not actually linked to forgetting. Because can God forget? No, he cannot. Except it says in Genesis 8, and God remembered Noah. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God you know, flooded the world and then he put him on the ark and he pushed him off and then he went back up to heaven and, uh, you know, and then started playing on his Xbox and uh, later on the archangel Michael taps him on the shoulder and says, excuse me, Lord, but there's a guy floating around out here on a boat and he thinks he knows you. And God's like, oh, really? How long have you been down there? Oh, 150 days. Oh, my gosh. It must stink in there with all those animals. Quick, right? I need to, I need to drain the water. I need a rainbow. I need uh, some, some, some birds. Uh, a twig of a branch would be nice. Let's get this show on the road. God remembered Rachel. And he opened up her womb. And God remembered Israel, and with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, he plucked his people, who didn't know anything about him, out of Egypt. So memory is linked to doing. When you remember something that spurs you into action, and that's why you often see in the Bible, in the texts, do this to remember me. And so we will engage in that uh, aspect today when it comes time for our uh, intercessions and our prayers, we will remember uh, the, the 11th of November, which is tomorrow. And uh, at 11 o'clock, it is traditional to stand and have uh, two minutes of silence. And we will do that uh, again uh, today as well, even though it's the 10th. So our appointed te texts for the day, there's a few of them, and I'm sure you can probably all see the common theme. The theme was resurrection, and life after death. And so in context, we find that uh, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus has, is in Jerusalem. He has migrated south for the final showdown. We're getting ready for Passover. We're getting ready for the resurrection. And uh, he's been teaching in the temple, in the temple courts, which is exactly where you found him. Uh, when he first started his ministry, when he was 12. Yes? As a young boy, he was in his father's house. And so when he comes to Jerusalem, he's back inside the temple and he's beginning his uh, teaching and his discussion and, of course, uh, the challenges. And uh, he is questioned and challenged um, by the temple leadership, a party of people called the Sadducees. And I'm sure we all know who these are. They're always good straw men to, to poke and prod. They are the aristocratic families that exist uh, in Jerusalem. They are politically minded. They're very religious, very devout. Uh, they're in complete control of the temple, and yet, despite their uh, devout uh, religion and their piety, they are completely willing to sell out to all the secular and pagan leadership to keep themselves uh, in power. These guys would would you know, sell their grandmothers for the privilege of being able to go and worship God. Right? You know, These are not uh, a good group of people. But they control the priesthood. They control the temple leadership. 
The temple is corrupt, and Jesus still goes there, which is a good lesson for us, I think. They reject oral tradition. They say, we don't like your interpretations. In fact, any interpretation other than the literal text is just not true. You heard of those churches before? Hmm. <laughs> well, we had them 2,000 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun, a wise man once said. He can't be that smart. He had 1,000 women. But anyway, before he did that, he was quite intelligent. They rejected oral tradition, and they rejected the resurrection. That doesn't, doesn't mean that they didn't believe you went somewhere when you died. They just didn't believe you'd come back. It was a one-way street. And they believed that uh, if God loved you and uh, you were a good person and uh, you were faithful, then God would bless you. And how would he bless you? With money. So were rather wealthy. Have you heard of those sort of churches before? <laughs> Oh my gosh, there is nothing new under the sun, is there? Okay? And so these guys would think that if the Lord is blessing us, we will be incredibly wealthy, and when we die, we will just go on to wherever we go on. But you ain't coming back, was their thought. But instead, uh, we have uh, an encounter with Jesus and a challenge on what actually happens after death. Do you actually really come back? And the discussion centers around this uh, Leverite marriage rule, which we find is in the Torah. Now notice that when people quote the Bible, they don't quote, as they don't quote chapter and verse. Why not? Because those things haven't been invented yet. So it's sort of like somewhere in the Torah it says this. You know, if you roll out the scroll, it's in the third column, about halfway down, just after the gap. Oh, yes, I know what you're talking about. Uh, so they just say, it's in somewhere in Moses. And you have this rule that if there is a childless widow, she has to have children. You have to provide for her, and you have to take care of her, and you have to make sure that uh, she is nurtured, comforted, and supported, and protected. So, brother, you will go and do your job. And that was what happened. So here they come up with essentially an impossible scenario, okay, that there are seven brothers and they all uh, die of some horrible illness before uh, this lady does. It's not a real event. And uh, we end up with what happens with death? What happens in the, in the, the, the world to come? Is there life? Do you really come back? Mark Twain said a very interesting quote. said, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. So before we get stuck in the debate of what happens in heaven and get caught in these little discussions of, well, is there actually marriage in heaven? I have a beautiful wife. Uh, when, when we go on, what, what sort of relationship am I gonna have with her? Uh, what happens if I have another wife in between now and then? Uh, before we get caught into all those kinds of things, are we like angels? What does it mean to be a child of the resurrection? We need to talk about death and, uh, and what that meant in the Second Temple period. Because when we pick up our Bibles, and we go into the Hebrew scriptures, 
there isn't much of a discussion about the afterlife. So when you die, where do you go? You go to a place called Sheol. Where is Sheol? You and I don't know. Not much is said about it. It's not described. Doesn't give you the boundaries. So you just everybody goes there. In fact, King David so much did not like that idea that when he wrote in his Psalms, please don't let me die because otherwise I can't praise you. Not in Sheol, except we just read a Psalm that said that I will. So there's a bit of a theological development that occurs in the Second Temple period. And guess where it comes from? <gasps> Oral tradition. Oral tradition and theological discussion because people are wrestling with this idea. What happens to us when we die? What happens if you were a really good person and you didn't get wealthy and you weren't blessed? Obviously, like with wealth. But you were a good guy and the Romans came and killed you. Where's the justice in that? So you begin to think about uh, these traditions. And in Psalm 145, which is the first psalm that we read, and that was the psalm that's appointed for the day, actually has some beautiful theology because psalms are prayers. The book of Psalms, the book of Tehillim, are prayers. And uh, as Yeshua, as Jesus said, it's not what goes in your mouth that's important, it's what comes out, right? So a prayer in Hebrew is lahit palel, which is a reflexive verb. Prayer is something you do to yourself. Now isn't that a bizarre thought? Does God need your prayers? No, he doesn't need them. He might want them. He might desire them. He might want to talk to you. And have you talked to him? Yes, he does. But if I don't pray to him, will he still be God? Yes. Will he still sit on the throne? Yes. Will he still have his perfect will? Yes. So he doesn't need my prayer. Who needs to pray? Me. And I need to know what's coming out my mouth. Okay? I gotta listen to the prayers that are coming out of my house. From my heart come my prayers. So if I tell you, hey guys, you know, I trust the Lord and everything's fantastic, but every time I pray, it's Lord, please give me a Mercedes. Please look, give me a Mercedes. Where's my heart? Yes. It's with the Mercedes. Okay. So I gotta be careful. So we actually need to listen to our prayers. So it's really good to go to a group prayer and listen to other people's prayers and go, oh, that's what you're thinking these days. That's kind of cool. I know what you told me as we were walking here, but when I heard you pray, that's really where you're at. Okay? It's not what goes in your mouth, it's what comes out. So the Psalms are prayers. So you pray them, they're coming out of your mouth. And what does verse one say of this Psalm? My flesh will praise you and bless you. For how long? Forever and ever. That's what's coming out my lips. Now how's that gonna happen? because we're all going down to Sheol. How am I gonna praise the Lord forever and ever other than, no, I'll just praise you and then I'll die and then that's it. And I'll just sort of go into soul sleep and just mm. But so in, in Jewish tradition, they had these prayers, they were praying these things and so they needed to develop those thoughts. And so you get to the second reading, which is uh, Job. 
And he says, of those, those beautiful lines, I know that my Redeemer lives. Yes? I know that my Redeemer lives. He's living. And even though that my skin, my flesh will be destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. How's that going to happen? Well, it doesn't actually say. But it is interesting. Whose flesh is going to see God? My flesh. What body is going to happen in the resurrection? It's going to be my body. And, uh, and I will be able to see God. My mouth will be able to speak your praises. I will be able to hear the Lord speak. Not only that, I'm going to hear him sing. Because in prophet Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah, he says, I, the Lord, am going to rejoice over you and sing. Now, isn't that a beautiful thought? We are not the only ones who sing. God sings. And I've got to tell you, I'm looking forward to hearing that. Okay? That is going to be a beautiful sound. My flesh will see God. Whose flesh? My flesh. How's that going to happen? Well, I don't know. But it is going to happen. And I want to just segue off to another prophet, the prophet Jonah, who, as uh, the, the book of Jonah is read on Yom Kippur, uh, the day of repentance. The book is read because God wanted a group of Gentiles to repent, which is an interesting concept, isn't it? On the Jewish holy day, who we, who, which book are we reading? May the Gentiles start repenting. There we read the book of Jonah. Excellent. So God goes down to this prophet and he says, Jonah, I need you to go to this really nasty city and tell them that they need to repent. And what does Jonah say? No. He runs off this way. And if you're, if you're a Jewish rabbi and you've been studying these, these books, the first question that comes to your mind is, what on earth is God doing? I mean, do you want these people to repent, Lord? Yes then why didn't you pick a prophet who would say yes? Surely you're God, and surely you know what people are going to do, and surely you would have, out of all your prophets on the planet, there would be somebody who would go, yep, I'll do that, and I'm off. But instead, something else happens. And so you read in, uh, in, in uh, uh, the book of Jonah, just at the end of the first chapter, it says that God... Yoman et hadag, which we translate as sometimes prepared, which is actually lehit konento, it's a different verb, uh, appointed, not 100% sure that's the right thing. In Hebrew, modern Hebrew, a yoman is a diary. So a good translation would be God scheduled a fish. <laughs> so God goes to this big fish and says, Listen, mate, because God's Australian. Listen, mate, I need you to be over here, right? Like on such and such a time. I know you'll be hungry, but you're fine. Right? And then he goes up to his prophet and he says, Hi, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, No, I'm off. And God's like, Oh, this would be good, boys. You watching? Okay. And Jonah's like, Hops on a boat. Ah! And then what happens to him? He's, in, he's swallowed by a fish. 
And in, usually in our tradition, we have this idea that uh, Jonah's in some little air bubble inside this fish, and uh, he's got lots of time to think and contemplate uh, his, 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 his no to the Lord, not the smartest thing on the planet. Um, except that in Hebrew, it says, sheol. I am in the belly of Sheol, which is Hebrew for I am dead. I'm dead. And I've got lots of time to contemplate now. So I contemplate and I, and I pray. And, uh, so, and so three days later, he's going to get resurrected, which is what Jesus says. I will give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. Resurrection. Now, our little hero has been in the fish for three days, and so the enzymes have been working on him. Yeah? So he's not looking so hot when he comes out. Okay, skin's all bleached, you know, the hair's all gone. He's like, this smells really horrible. Because if God had actually gone to a normal good little Jewish prophet and said, listen, I need you to go to Nineveh, and the prophet said, yep, sounds good, and he goes to Nineveh, and a completely normal looking Jewish boy, what do you think some Gentiles are going to say to that? Go away, you know, silly little Jewish man. But instead, what walked into their city? This really weird looking person, you know, and you go, what the heck happened to you? He said, well, I was actually swallowed by a fish. I said no to God, and I've got a message for you. Please tell me. So sometimes God needs you to say no, and he'll still get his will done. Now, isn't that a nice thought? God is in complete control. But there was resurrection sitting inside the text inside their prayers, inside the very words of Moses that God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And they're not dead, they're alive. And everyone yet still in the second temple period was going to this place called Sheol and they didn't like that very much, so they decided to split Sheol into two. This is oral tradition, the thing the Sadducees don't like. So they split Sheol into two, they had a really bad part, lots of fire, okay? And uh, it was really horrible. Then there was a really good part, and we gave it a really nice name. We called it Paradise. Right? Today you'll be with me in Paradise, because I'm going there, and you're going to come with me. And it was a beautiful spot, and you would meet other heroes there. And so Jesus, in Luke 16, uses the oral tradition of his day, the understanding of that time, of what of where Sheol is and what it looks like, in one of his teachings. And he has this rich man who's clothed in purple, which has no name. Usually when Jesus gives parables, no one has a name except this one. This is the only time where he gives the other hero a name. And he says, and there was a poor man called Lazarus. So who's Lazarus? That's his friend. He's always going and staying in their friend with Mary and Martha. You just imagine Lazarus is off to the side going, oh, not that me again. Choose Nathaniel. You know, you always make me part of the story. What has he done? He's been sitting under a tree all day, you know? Um, So there's this poor man, Lazarus, and he dies, and, uh, and they both go. One goes to a good place, and one goes to a not good place. But what can they do? They can talk. They can walk around. They can communicate with each other. They're not dead. They're something. They even know that they've still got family on the other side. The rich man says, uh, Abraham, can you send somebody to my brothers? And what does Abraham say? 
Even if someone resurrects, they're not going to believe. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? Sometimes miracles, actually mainly miracles don't save you. It's nice to have them. We should expect them. Because God is in the miracle business. But it's not the miracle that saves you. Not normally. Faith comes by hearing. Use your mouth. The taming of the tongue, an incredibly important device. So Jesus has this oral tradition, which he uses very well to, to, let us, to remind us that in the beginning, there was this thing called life. And then this thing called death entered. It was never supposed to be there. It's not part of the original creation. But we all have to pass through it. And on the other side of death is life. The whole thing is eternal life. And so in the book of Hebrews, those that have passed on before us are a cloud of witnesses. It's not just angels up there watching us. It's those that have gone before, praying for us, cheering us on, reminding us to stay firm. You can make it. You can do it. In Revelation, the spirits of those who were martyred are standing before the throne saying, when, Lord, will you enact vengeance? So they can talk. They are conscious of time. They know that God hasn't come down and, and uh, done his vengeance. When Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, who shows up? Moses and Elijah. One of them died and the other one didn't. And yet, there they are, talking. And they're recognizable. And they know what's going to happen. Because in the Gospel of Luke, it says, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his exodus. The word it says in Greek. They were talking to him about what was going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. So in the Second Temple period, we've got a well-crafted idea of what's actually going to happen, brothers and sisters, that when we die, it is not over. Not by a long shot. And so the day that we are born is horribly important because you have begun eternal life. So now we better figure out why. So we encounter these little guys, the bad shepherds, the Sadducees. And uh, what makes them so bad is, is part of their theology. It doesn't give anyone hope, apart from the fact that it's just plain wrong. Okay? There's no hope in their theology. If you're good, you get rewarded. If you don't have a reward, you obviously do something bad. It's all your fault, complete victim blaming, and uh, we're the ones in charge. It's a hopeless world, horrible world. And, uh, and this, sometimes this, these types of theologies reappear again and again and again. Like, you know, the... The, the, just the very poor preaching that sometimes appears again and again in some of our churches. You wonder, how, well, I thought we had got rid of this before, but no, it reappears. Okay. Um, Paul had it, which is why it's, it's included a little bit uh, in the readings, this Second Thessalonians, it seems to jump out of nowhere. People had stopped giving people hope. He had come and he had shared Messiah was alive. And if Messiah is alive, you're going to be alive as well. Messiah rose from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead. 
this is fantastic, and then he's gonna come back. But then we started dying, and Jesus didn't come back. And so perhaps Paul got it wrong. Perhaps there really is no resurrection. Perhaps it really is kind of hopeless. Perhaps there is nothing after death, and it just, you just go to sleep and you, that's it. Oh my gosh, that's pretty hopeless. So Paul writes a letter and he says, no, that's not true. Now you know what I talked about. You know the signs uh, that were coming before the, the, the coming of the Lord. And he, there he brings in this character called the man of lawlessness, which I know you all want to know who that is. Um, I don't know. Okay? It's, it's not the Pope, okay? <laughs> it's not Martin Luther. It's none of those guys, right? It's, um, the, the idea of this person who's coming is actually a very old biblical one and it comes from, remember there's nothing new in the New Testament unless Jesus says now I tell you something new. Okay. Uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible in Exodus 17 when we've finally gotten the children of Israel out of Egypt and we're marching on our way to uh, Mount Sinai, God's going to reveal himself, create himself a kingdom, he's going to become the king, it's going to be absolutely fantastic, we're going to give them instructions that are going to be a light to the nations, we're going to get into the Holy Land Perfect. Suddenly, this tribe appears out of nowhere called Amalek. You ever heard of him? And he's going to recapture Israel. So everything that God planned would suddenly be null and void. This is Antichrist. The thing that's totally against every single plan of God. And so... Moses goes to Joshua and says, listen, Joshua, we've got this incredible battle plan. Now, I know that we haven't been soldiers before. We've never done this before, but um, I'm going to go stand on a hill. Yeah, I hold my hands out. And you pick some boys and you go fight. And you can imagine Joshua, yes? Is it, is it okay if I do the hill thing? <laughs> um, but I'll do it. Okay, fine. And so Moses does his little, little hand thing. We don't know whether it's like this or like this or like this. He just holds his hands up. Fantastic. And they defeat Amalek. And at the end of beating him away, the last verse of Exodus 17, and I, the Lord, will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why would you want to do that? You're really good at flooding the world. If you don't like something, you just, poof, we're done. You don't like Sodom and Gomorrah, you're awesome. Okay. Why would you want to have a war with a human tribe? Just, just flick, you're done. But there was something that was so bad with this tribe that they were trying to crush the very plans of God and the way he was going to deal with the world that God said, uh-uh, with this one, I war with you. Every generation, you and I fight. Oh, by the way, I win. But, okay, every generation, we're having a little, little fight. And so in every generation, we're looking for Amalek. Who is Amalek? And as we've gone through generations, then people work out, oh, it was Hitler, right? It was Stalin. It was, you know, he was the, that generation's Amalek. And interestingly, in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 24, Baalam, this uh, prophet, not a very good one, but he's still a prophet, says that he saw Amalek and he at, uttered this oracle against him. He said, Amalek, you are first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at the last. So you'll be around, Amalek, but you will be defeated, and you will, be, you will go. And so Paul had obviously taught them this, and he said, listen, I've been telling you this. Until we figure out who Amalek is, this man of lawlessness, 
then we'll get to the end. But it won't be the end. It will be the continuation of the beginning. Brothers and sisters, the day you were born was the day you started eternal life. Now isn't that an interesting thought? And our king, who was alive before, is alive now and is alive in the future, is sitting there waiting for us to join him in his kingdom. Although he is a king right now, ruling and reigning right now. He is alive right now and he is having his perfect will right now. So putting all this together and summing it up from our texts for the day. Brothers and sisters, we have hope. We have an incredible story to share with this world. Do we not? Paul summed up all of the faith in three words. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is not faith, oddly enough. And Peter says, be prepared at all times to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so brothers and sisters, that's what we have to share with a hopeless world, with a world that says there's nothing beyond death, that when they close their eyes for the very last time, everything's gone. Everything they worked for, everything that they dreamed, everything that they planned, everything that they saw with their children growing up, when they died, done. So what was the point? Oh my gosh, without God, it is hopeless. And so is it no surprise that our suicide rates go up? Is it no surprise that generations who have everything, does the next generation not have everything? Everything. We have provided a world where they can have instant information and yet they know nothing. They have absolutely everything that will give them happy, but they're not happy. They have every reason to rejoice, but they're depressed. You're, oh my gosh, perhaps wealth is not such a blessing. In fact, I don't remember Jesus ever saying it was. It was blessed, better to give than to receive. Did he not say that? Suffering produces perseverance, character, and hope. Now, I'm not saying blessings don't occur. They do. Is not God generous? Yes, he is. Are we not his children? Yes, we are. Is he not ruling and raising? Yes, he is. And he knows how to give good gifts to his children. And he does. And so blessings often go hand in hand with suffering. And that's okay. So brothers and sisters, when it's time for us to suffer, let us not do it alone. Let us remind each other of the hope that we have that one day our flesh will see God. That this thing called death was never meant to be there. And one day, God is going to take it. He's going to open up hell and put it away. And it will be away forever. And we will be able to live and breathe and stand and walk and talk and fellowship with a risen Messiah. And all the relationships that we have right now will be better. I don't know what happens in heaven with marriage, but you know what? It will be better. I don't know what food tastes like on the next world, but it will be better. 
Even the air is going to taste great because God's going to be there. And I'm going to get to hear his voice sing. Oh my gosh, that is good news. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.